Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 24 of The Pick List. Are you having a good week? Hello, Laura. I'm having a very good week. Thank you. Uh, Lots of training and running online courses, uh, this time on the fundamentals of good writing. So that's been keeping me very busy. What have you been up to? Yeah, busy week. I've been chairing more industry meetings, which are keeping me out of mischief, which is great, and pitching for some uh, more business coming in in 2021. So yeah, it's a a quick run up up to Christmas at the moment. Um, We've got an amazing guest this week, haven't we? We have indeed. We're joined by Asia Walker, who is Regional Marketing Manager at Alliance. Asia is a brilliant guest and she brings a really fantastic perspective to the various articles that we've been discussing this week. Should we start the show? Asia, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you on. Thank you for having me. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to food and drink? Sure. So I um, work for Alliance Group. So Alliance Group are New Zealand um, processor and producer of lamb, beef and venison. I am marketing regional marketing manager of UK and Europe. So I've been with the company for two years now. Um, I kind of just stumbled into the job, uh, not knowing kind of anything about the meat industry. And two years later, still kind of learning a lot of stuff on the way. Um, I actually started my role kind of in like logistics uh, slash marketing. And now I do full marketing all the time. Fantastic. And you've brought some really interesting articles for us to discuss this week as well. Why don't you tell us about your first article? Sure. Yeah. So the first article is kind of um, it's to do with the big retailers. So you've got Tesco's and Asda and and Lidl and Waitrose and all of those kind of um, retailers and the struggles they're having this year with kind of like Christmas slots. Um, I think uh, Tesco released their Christmas slots last week and they went within like half an hour. Um, So obviously this year, a lot of people are tending to stay at home and not not a lot of people are going out into uh, supermarkets if they're kind of, you know, have vulnerable people at home. Um, So the Christmas slots are going very quickly, which can definitely cause some problems for people that need those delivery slots. So they're just talking about other ways that people can get their Christmas food without having to leave home, whether it's your like local butcher that does delivery um, and or a lot of places are doing kind of like Christmas hampers with like vegetables and meat and you can order one of them so it's just about like alternative ways um, to get your Christmas food if your local kind of like Tesco or Asda is completely full. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting piece, and I think from the grocer, um, if if I remember correctly, um, and I think what's so interesting here is that we've had this um story throughout the pandemic, haven't we, of how we've all started 
uh, switching to online. You know, e-commerce has seen such a massive boost and we're all much more used to buying all sorts of things, including groceries online. And Christmas would now be the sort of natural thing, uh, the natural focal point. We all want to be shopping online, but of course, capacity um, is, is, is still a, a massive issue. And as I think the article points out, you know, these retailers really had to squeeze every last little bit of efficiency out of those operations already. It's not easy to just suddenly, you know, have masses of extra capacity uh, just because it's coming up to Christmas. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens once more retailers release their Christmas delivery slots and just how many people will ultimately be able to shop like that Um for, for Christmas. I think click and collect, as the article alludes to as well, I think is going to play um, a, a massive role. That's what I'm banking on. I really hope I'm going to be able to do click and collect. Yeah, I think it's a great article from the groceries that you've brought this week. And you're right, Julia, click and collect. And we spoke about Aldi last week, trialing more and click and collect across 200 uh, stores. Is this an opportunity for, for them and others to, to step up more? Um, the other thing uh, in terms of the, the number of people that are potentially in the country, I was hearing some from some industry contacts last week that, that they're hearing from their retail customers that there's going to be up to 7 million more people in the country this Christmas than, than normally because um, unfortunately I haven't been one of these but sometimes people go off on a nice cruise or go skiing or all the rest of it so actually the additional demand through those retail channels and maybe not a food service either it is, is going to be phenomenal um, and then I, I guess when I'm reading the article I'm always thinking as well as well who are we having around for Christmas dinner because we still don't know um, A where we maybe can buy our food from and even if you do get a clicking um, sorry a delivery slot what are you actually ordering because at this stage in the game depending if you particularly if you're in England and the tiering system and I know Scotland have, have just changed some of their rules this week what's that actually going to look like and how many people are you going to have around your table and how big's that piece of meat that you're going to be ordering yeah I think I think that's definitely another question people have is if you're only with like like it's just myself and my mum we don't want a big massive turkey because we're going to have meat for ages you know we're probably more likely going to go for like a, a medium-sized chicken um so it, I think although people will be ordering online they might be ordering smaller amounts than they normally would because you're not going to have parties of 20 or 30 in your house um so I think we'll definitely see kind of a shift in kind of demand for certain products and, and the amount, amount that people normally buy um so that will be quite interesting to see, I think. Absolutely. And it reminded me just listening to you there. Um, I think when uh, M&S released some of their sort of Christmas trend predictions a few weeks ago, they talked about minimus as as one of those sort of uh, key trends. And it's exactly what you were talking about, which is, you know, smaller gatherings, people not looking for that massive centerpiece that's going to serve eight or 10 people, but having smaller portions and potentially more variety. I mean, there are, I think, opportunities there, you know, from, from a meat industry point of view, but, but also more widely for people to just have a, a wider repertoire of meats and, and foods, because it's not just going to be about that single big occasion 
you know you're potentially going to have smaller mini misses um, over the over the festive period of course um, if if social distancing rules allow and, and as you say we still don't know exactly what the rules are going to be at this stage um, over the over the festive period so lots of people will be waiting and seeing before committing to uh, to that Christmas knot or com- committing to a big uh, turkey purchase or otherwise and it's so tough for the suppliers and the retailers to be able to pivot on the the advice that's going to come out um over the next couple of weeks about what christmas is going to look like and i guess what springs to my mind is is party food you know over the next few weeks we'd normally see gondola ends full of party food and and big uh, fixture space and freezers for it but if you there's still a restriction on the number of people in your household then that's not a product that's that's going to sell particularly well but retailers will have uh, agreed to purchase that product what what's that going to look like and are they going to pivot to to something else that, that down the minim, uh, minimus uh, uh, option which is going to be fascinating to watch tough time julia what's your first article this week so my first pick this week is from the times and it's an article titled brands struggling to get a handle on woke capitalism it's not an article that's specifically about food or grocery, but it touches on issues that I think are relevant for brands across the board. And it does reference um, a few retail names in there as well. And in essence, it's looking at the difficulties that many big brands are facing in figuring out how they can meet younger consumers' desire in particular for social activism and brands that take a stand on important social, political and environmental issues. How do you do that credibly as a brand and as a big brand in particular? And the piece really caught my eye because I've recently worked on a report that's um, that's been published recently um, on Gen Z and how grocery brands can build meaningful relationships with them. And this challenge, you know, of being expected to take a public stand on certain issues if you're a brand now and how to do that is it's just you know front of mind for so many brands in FMCG um, right now and in other sectors as well because the stakes are so high. If you get this wrong, if you strike the wrong tone, um, if you're seen to be woke washing, you have a PR disaster on your hand. But then not saying anything also doesn't feel like an option. And the article um, has a really interesting stat in there from Edelman, the consultancy, uh, which says 64% of people now say they have chosen or avoided a brand based on its stand on societal issues. And that's up from 51% in 2017. So there are real commercial consequences potentially for brands who ignore this. And the Times article brings some really interesting perspectives um, on this. Um, One of the things it focuses on is how the pandemic has added to the pressure brands face. This idea that younger consumers, that Gen Z are interested in these sort of socially aware brands, that's not a new trend, but COVID has really brought it into focus because it's led consumers across the board to ask tougher questions about what lies behind the rhetoric of some of these brands and how they're actually behaving versus how they're presenting themselves in their marketing and their advertising. You know, are you running cutesy feel-good adverts about, you know, staying strong while being apart and all of that while treating your staff horribly and making them work in conditions where they're putting their health on the line? 
And the article also does point out that this challenge of how to take a position on important issues credibly and authentically, that challenge isn't going away. It's something that brands will need to figure out. Um, And there are some signs that they're definitely starting to do this, and it's partly because of pressure from investors. I was interested to see that there's a quote in there from Arthur Krebers, who's head of sustainable finance for corporates at NatWest Markets. And he talks about how reluctant and conservative certain company treasurers would have been previously on these issues. But now, he says, they're realizing that if they don't develop a proactive narrative around this that is credible and has substance, then they will start to lose out in terms of investor demand, bank liquidity, and hence cost of equity and debt. And that's been a really profound shift. So you're having these senior executives at these companies starting to draw a line between proactive stands on certain social issues and actual financial performance. So it'll be fascinating to see how this shift plays out and whether we're going to see more brands take more proactive positions and more carefully thought out positions um, on this in the future. But certainly, I think for the time being, a really, really difficult balance to strike uh, for brands. Some of them do this quite well. You know, people always talk about Ben and Jerry's and they have a sort of heritage around activism as well, which can make some of these things a little bit easier. But I I think for, for many others, this feels like an area where they know they should be doing something and they should develop uh, certain positions, but getting that right and managing the risk around, um, you know, being seen to be woke washing, I think is is really challenging. Asia, as, as someone who's considerably younger than me, I'm possibly exactly the kind of demographic that they're talking about when they're saying, um, you know, Gen Z is, is looking for, for brands that have um, a, a real clear social stand. Is that something you're seeing? And are you seeing that that is playing out within the meat industry as well, that companies, that suppliers, that brands are, are starting to think more about what they need to do to appeal to younger consumers? Yeah, certainly. I mean, 2020 has been a a big year, um, not just for coronavirus, but, you know, we had the Australian fires in the beginning of the year. Um, We had the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, We've had, although we've had kind of this whole craziness of what's happened this year, we've also seen a lot of good things come out of it. So because people weren't traveling, you had Venice that had clear, clear blue waters because there was no boats. Um, Australia is now starting to heal from the wild um, fires you see there's not as much kind of like litter here and there because people aren't out and about and and littering Um, and I certainly think that especially kind of like my generation and the generations underneath kind of my age group we are um, a lot more aware of things and I think we have this whole kind of like, you might have heard of it, but there's this like cancel culture. Um, and if our generation doesn't agree with something, we kind of cancel it as such. And, and people kind of say, well, don't go near that brand because, you know, their their ethics aren't very good. Um, you know, you shouldn't like support them. And even not even just by like buying things from them, but, you know, liking their Instagram posts and following them on social media counts as a big thing as well. Um, so you can see, you know, if a brand posts an advert and the advert doesn't go down well with people, they'll lose followers within like the hour. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think our generation is, is a lot more aware. Um, also, definitely in the industry, I think, um, especially within the meat industry, because we um, 
are up against kind of like veganism and vegetarianism it's very kind of like we have to keep on trend and we have to show that although we are providing these products that we can provide them in a sustainable way um so it's just about how we portray that to people whether it's through an in you know an infographic or a video or kind of getting some like um top influencers on board that's kind of i think the route that we have to go down and kind of kind of um showcase that we can be sustainable um even if your product is coming from far and wide you know uh, we can make a difference and we can do things like um offset our carbon emissions it's fascinating to listen to you asia about you know that the pace as well around this you know within the hour social media likes and social media followings can change and just how impactful that is um and reading the article what, what struck me was this is easy for brands that have got a strong position statement a strong strategy and are really clear on what their values are and the likes of corp and steve morell's it's easy for him to come out and be very authentic about what their mission is because it's inherent in their values where organizations maybe as, as we've spoken about don't maybe always have that backing and that foundation and um, maybe I guess that their staff don't live and breathe what they're wanting to achieve it it is harder and it it doesn't feel as genuine I I was interested um, this week as well I see that Morrison's and McVitie's have got a a, a joint initiative going now where if you buy a a box of a certain box of McVitie's biscuits then one box gets donated to a food bank and I wonder if that's an opportunity to maybe de-risk some of this brands doing things in isolation by partnering with retailers and will we see more of that where there's different organizations brands and uh, retailers coming together to help address this rather than just feeling they're in isolation and thinking you know are are we saying the right thing or doing the right thing Laura what's your first pick for us Uh, my first pick this week is from the BBC and it's Felixstowe Port in Chaos as Christmas and Brexit loom Uh, and I was really interested by this article it's also had quite a lot of coverage over mainstream media um, radio um, over over the last couple of days and this is basically um, retailers uh, shipping associations and the road haulage association saying Felixstowe is in chaos and some of the um, folks that are shipping product into Felixstowe are now redirecting it to Rotterdam Dam and sending a product via road into the UK uh, and basically saying there's up to a 10-day wait to get um, ships docked at Felixstowe. Uh, Felixstowe responding by saying um, this is pre-Brexit stockpiling and linked to the pandemic and there's uh, 11,000 containers of PPE uh, uh, coming into Felixstowe which is is challenging in terms of um, the capacity in there and what really strikes me and I think having this in mainstream press and and, and consumers looking at it is that challenge about Christmas product and there's a comment within the article talking about uh, bold cube scooters, kids scooters and they're waiting for five containers to be docked, they don't know when it's going to be docked and the date keeps getting pushed back and back and if I was reading this as a consumer I'd be thinking right there's a danger here I might not get my kids Christmas present if it's something that's not already in store 
store I'm gonna maybe order now on Amazon or, or go sooner on a on a purchase than I maybe would have done previously and I think we always have this luxury that that logistics is super complicated um, and it just naturally happens to, to shoppers both for, uh, for, for uh, fresh and food products and also uh, ambient products and into other categories like toys that we're so lucky in the UK that it, it's just there uh, and this is really triggering the fact that 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 it might not be there and in future as well there could be uh, extra costs passed on to consumers because of the additional uh, price shipping uh, and and logistic challenges and also um, getting slots in to collect some of these goods at Felixstowe um, is a challenge which could actually leave some of the goods just uh, at quayside so I was interested in the article one because of the, the the logistic challenge but two how much coverage this has got in mainstream press and as a result what's this going to do to consumer behavior what do you think asia have you picked this up i guess that the market that you work in and this is really important about how quick ships can dock how you can get product how quickly you can get a perishable product off them and in, in, into the customer's hands how much are you picking up of this and what do you think it'll mean yeah, I mean, it's been really tricky for our logistics guys. Uh, we've got containers that are like 10 days late um, and, you know, they get to the port and they just sit on the side, um, especially if it's chilled product. It's a lot more, you know, the life on it goes a lot quicker. Um, so you're looking at kind of the retailers are calling us up saying, where's our product? And we're saying we can't do anything about it. It's not been approved by the vets or, you know, this kind of thing. Um, so it is, it is definitely frustrating because, you know, the, the, all the guys from over in New Zealand and in England here, we're all doing all the work to get the containers from New Zealand to here. And then it's kind of like the last push is where we get held up the most. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is very frustrating. Obviously, we are very understandable of the situation because I think with COVID, it, it's difficult because you can't have loads of people kind of on the docks than you normally would um but I think also it's um it, it's a catch-22 situation really because you've got people like Tesco's and stuff who who want their product and need their product for the customers but then at the same time you've got the people that are working down on the dock who are saying we can't employ more people because you know covid wise we need to keep them safe and I think if there was to be a covid outbreak there it would just be disastrous um so almost in a way you kind of want them to carry on the way that they are to kind of keep operating at some level then to completely shut down um so yeah I mean it's um I think only time will tell because Brexit hasn't happened yet um and hopefully as kind of Covid kind of slows down a bit they'll be able to employ a bit more people and, and hopefully it'll just get a bit faster in that sense but it is kind of um a bit difficult sometimes when you've got the cost customer ringing you up for the product um and we can't physically get it to them at the moment Asia tell us about your second pick so my second pick is from the grocer as well um and it's about pret and how they have decided to do kind of like dinners at home so you can order a dinner on their app um and it will just arrive at home i think it's things like soups and kind of like 
curries and kind of what they do at lunchtime but more towards dinner time and what I really liked about it was that Pret have been always been an innovative company um so you had kind of in the summer they came up with their picnic ideas you can order like a um crudeterre with like hummus and vegetables and the, you can actually order it to the park and and have it in the park with friends um or they had like a plowman's pack with like cheese and chutneys and, and that kind of thing um so I definitely think they are going with the trends I think what Pret have to do what a Pret kind of like Starbucks and you know Costa because they are located where a lot of offices are and because offices aren't actually operating at the moment they have to find other ways to um reach their customers so yeah I really like the way that they kind of pivot their business to meet kind of the changing um aspects of the way the world is at the moment they're super innovative as you say and god i miss pret uh, <laughs> when you pick the article and you just chatting through there about the, the the different things that they do and it makes me feel so hungry uh because it, there's not that many prets uh, up in the northeast and uh, it was a, it's always a, a london treat um and i guess when we're looking at the article it makes me think you know are they moving into this dark kitchen model as we've seen you know a, a lot of folks are trying it and as you say they're hamstrung by the geography uh, of if they're using Deliveroo and others that buy the, the, the trial stores that they're doing in the centre of London, buy the, the, the catchment around there. And if they, they want to get um, a, a stronger reach, then they're going to have to have stores in more residential areas, as you mentioned. I also, I do really like just how um, innovative and, and how agile Pret have been, as, as you said, Ada. And, and I think trying out these different options, experimenting, running all sorts of trials um, to see how they can still reach customers and, and reach them um, on different occasions, I think is absolutely critical. What I think will be quite challenging for them is forging that association in the consumer's mind with their brand name and a dinner kind of occasion because I think they are so well established around lunchtime um you know people sort of automatically think of them what's it going to take for someone to be at home and to say I fancy a nice dinner I fancy a nice curry or focaccia pizza or whatever that they've got on their offering I'm going to look for that from Pret at that sort of time of night when there are so many other options available as well. Um, so I, I think that's that's going to be really important for them for them to crack. And I'll be very interested to see what strategies they employ to get people to um, to start thinking of them for those occasions. Certainly, I think partnering with some of those takeaway delivery partners will help with that because you're then within an ecosystem where you're potentially discoverable alongside other uh, sort of takeaway and dinner options as well. But yeah, I'll be watching that with really great interest to see um, how they make that happen. Julia, what's your second pick this week? So my second pick this week is from Modern Retail and it's an article titled Why Video Games Are the Next Retail Frontier. I'm not a gamer personally, but I'm fascinated by how gaming is changing and how brands and retailers are starting to look at gaming in really quite innovative ways. Um, because gaming has such a mainstream appeal these days, you're also seeing a much wider range of brands and retailers working with gamers and in gaming than you would perhaps have expected traditionally. 
Um, this particular article focuses on um, a really interesting development where we're not just seeing brands or retailers pop up in video games through product placement or sponsorship, but we're actually seeing full-scale retail businesses being launched within games and around games. Um, the example the article focuses on is a popular apartment design game called Design a Home, where you basically get to design your own apartment and you can buy all sorts of digital furniture items for your digital apartment. But now the company behind this game has actually launched a real life sort of home accessories and furnishings company. So you can furnish your digital apartment within the game with your digital sofa and digital cushions but if there's an item that you actually like you can now also buy the real life version for your own real life apartment directly from within the game so it's a really interesting tie-up of gaming and e-commerce and there's an interesting quote also uh, from that company where they're saying that they're basically seeing gaming increasingly as a platform for consumers to discover and engage with brands through creative play because you're sort of experiencing the product and the brand within the context of the game. The article then goes on to look at which other games might be suited for this kind of setup. And the experts they're talking to basically say that it's simulation games such as Sims or FIFA that have particularly strong potential because they're meant to replicate real life. So the presence of real life brands doesn't feel out of place or forced. It can actually enhance the sort of reality um, of the game itself. Uh, one of the challenges that still exist in this fear that, that brands and retailers are still facing is around metrics. Some video games have really good metrics and really great levels of transparency around viewing figures and engagement, others less so. But there are quite a lot of efforts underway now um, to, to change that. New companies, new startups coming into the market also looking to really um bring greater clarity um, and usability and transparency to some of these metrics. So it feels like an area where we're going to see more and more brand activity over time. Um, but yeah, such a fascinating idea, I think, to not just look at, at gaming as something where you can appear as a brand or where you might want to sponsor someone or something, but actually have that link between gaming and e-commerce, have people discover brands and products um, within a sort of gaming environment and then actually buy them for their real life um, as well. Asia, what did you make of it? Are you a gamer? Is this something that you could see yourself do? Um, yeah, I mean, I play Sims. <laughs> So I think I think it's definitely a very kind of interesting way to market your brand. Um, you know, if you kind of are designing your house in The Sims, for example, and you see kind of like a chair that you like, um, you can then like buy it in real life or something. That's that's kind of like a I guess a, a, a cheap way for you to see how your room may look like in real life without actually having to spend the money um in person to begin with. So I think gaming is definitely a huge, huge market. Um, you know, you've got these YouTubers who do like streaming and stuff and they make like lots of money. Um, I think especially this year, if you've you know released a game this year, you know, you're gonna do really well because everyone's at home and all they do is is spend time gaming. And I think I remember the first kind of like couple of months of lockdown back in March, you couldn't find any like PS5s or Nintendo's anywhere. They were sold out because everyone that's all everyone was doing. Um, so I think to be like innovative and 
come up with something like that where you can kind of do your like run your business um within a game I think is very very kind of a clever idea because people will immediately kind of you know search online for it if you have kind of like a QR code or something um and they will yeah it's one of those things that will trend very quickly again on like Twitter and Instagram and it can easily kind of like go viral so if you have a good campaign in like the sims for example then yeah you're pretty set for like the rest of your like career I reckon because they can just like go viral very quickly um and that is the beauty of social media <laughs> Uh, for me, because I'm not a gamer and it makes me feel really old, uh, so it's really interesting to hear what you're saying, Asia. For, for me, it uh, makes me realise you've got to make sure your marketing team understands where your customers are, what they're doing and how you can communicate them with them in different ways like this and always look to evolve. Uh, as you said, this is something that feels like influencers um the next step rather than you know on instagram where you can swipe up to purchase well actually you, you're building your own ecosystem then to buy from that it feels a lot more natural and and, and maybe lowers the barriers to entry as well so fa absolutely fascinating and making sure that all this technology evolves into benefits for businesses and yeah, and I think the, the point you've just made there, Laura, I think is key that um, as brands, as, as marketing teams, I think it's so important to make sure that you sort of look beyond yourself and your own media habits as well. I mean, that was something that, that really came through when I did my research for that Gen Z report that I wrote. Um, you know, you, you hear from marketers say it's it can be a real challenge actually to sort of not base these decisions purely on your own media habits and feel like I don't play games so you know this doesn't feel intuitive or or to just look at what your kids are doing um as opposed to saying no I need to take a really kind of data-led approach here and have a look at the figures make sure I understand where the audience is these might be forms of media consumption that don't appeal to me that don't feel intuitive to me that's not how I game that's not how I use my mobile phone but that doesn't mean that there aren't huge groups of consumers and particularly younger consumers that are doing exactly that and you need to be there and you need to kind of know how to engage with them because otherwise yeah your your sort of brand awareness levels are just going to fall off a cliff at some point because you're not going to you know be in front of that next generation of shoppers. Laura what's your second article for us? My second article this week is via Nam News and it's a, a research piece from Mintel and it's Opportunities for Lockdown 2.0. As we know here in England, we're, are we halfway? Feels like we're halfway through a lockdown. We're almost there, hopefully. Um, this is a, a few uh, hints and tips about how uh, businesses, um, particularly in the retail uh, sector, can uh, benefit and what they can look at as, as we're in lockdown again. And they make a couple of key points, which I thought would be of interest to chat through. First of all, maintained habits they talk about. And this is all about the online shift. And we've seen it tremendously, haven't we? And we've spoken about it on today's show, how folks are, are buying more and more, particularly food online, and how that's not going to stay, that's going to stick. And as we've spoken about, uh, Christmas is a case in point that, that the slots have gone. Um, in terms of Christmas, it will create potential for remote gifting and tailored products um, for subscription models such as wine and chocolate. And that's really interesting that, you know, particularly for independent retailers and, and some of the big players 
as well that wouldn't traditionally have a mail order service uh, using as a gift. Um, it, it offers a huge opportunity, the Mintel report states. There's also a piece, and it, it loops back to the conversation we've just had around Boost Digital and the Zoom boom, uh, and the fact that we're buying more and more tech, um, and also tech purchases maybe in the past, so be that TVs or mobile phones, we would want to see them, we would want to go in store and have that tangible experience to see what the functionality was like and, and all the rest of it. Whereas now, and it reminds me a little bit about like meat research, previously people wouldn't buy a steak unless they could feel it they were happy to buy uh, mince online but they wanted to pick their own steak exactly the same as tech because that these retailers are closed they're happy actually to make the leap and make tech purchases online and some of these these players are um, upgrading their functionality of, of online experience and then finally, the, the, the point that was also interesting was about Amazon's benefiting and, and boy, do we know Amazon is benefiting for, from uh, lockdown, but also these small retailers are fighting back. And I was really intrigued that the Mintel report pulls out that they're fighting back by coming together. And it pulls out a couple of examples. Um, firstly, independent bookstores. Uh, they've uh, set up bookshop.org uh, so they can combine uh, resources and, and, uh, and online events. And then also music shops have a, a record store day uh, later this month, again, where independents can come together and champion. Because I guess when you're an independent small player, to have social media cut through and I guess to get th through to consumers that you don't normally have is really tough. So that, that, that uh, grouping has helped. Asia, what do you think of some of these uh, lockdown 2.0 options and and I guess for you what 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 stuck for you that's you you maybe you, you've alluded to there about um gaming and that sort of thing do you think that's things that will stick and will remain or will we let go of them once we're out of out of this lockdown yeah I think definitely with lockdown 2.0 people have kind of already got their like own routines of how they did things back in lockdown 1.0 um you know they would go on their daily run or play a pc game or something like that i think i think we did see a change when we were allowed to go out and do things people didn't necessarily spend a lot of time at home so they weren't necessarily reading a book as much as they should or playing a pc game you know we were more interacting face to face with people um i think things like obviously right in the beginning of lockdown back in march we had a lot of zoom parties and teams parties and quizzes and things like that and I think this time around we're not necessarily doing that so much so I definitely think um, over time things will kind of start to fade um, and people will find new things to do during lockdown and um, definitely I think once lockdown kind of officially ends and we, we can go out like shopping or to the park or like you know to the park with more people than we can now um or to like restaurants the cinema and things like that i do think we will kind of slowly get back into like normal life again and the things that we are doing at this moment in time we probably won't do um you know anytime soon unless we sadly have to go into another lockdown um i think also there is kind of like a mental connection there whereas people don't want to do the same things that they're doing in lockdown in the future because it reminds them of being in, in lockdown. And sometimes, you know, it's not a good experience for people, which is unfortunate because they don't necessarily, you know, they're working from home by themselves or they don't have family close by. So I think a lot of people will um, 
maybe not stick to the things that they've been doing because it reminds them of a time that wasn't very great for them. So, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens kind of over the next month or two um, and see what new kind of trends we adapt um, and get into, really. I think it's such a good point, actually, about how we may very well be wanting to deliberately move away from some of the stuff that we did during lockdown. So, you know, are we perhaps going to see um, almost a a backlash against some of that sort of very digitally focused behavior? Are we going to be so hungry for real life interaction, for going into a store with like great in-store theater? Um, or, you know, or are we going to stick with, with some of those um, digital habits for a little bit longer? I imagine it's probably going to end up somewhere in between with a, with a mixture of both, but I think it's really interesting. It's, it's an interesting question to raise to see exactly how much is going to stick. Um, I think from a kind of, uh, you know, brand point of view and supplier point of view, the point that was raised in the Mintel Research and the article that you picked, Laura, about um, some of the sort of digital habits, I think is really interesting, the sort of digital gifting, um, but also um, looking at how we're sort of changing our, our buying habits to really specifically support independence as well. Um, I think that does have the potential to change some of our habits longer term. Um, and the point that you raised about, you know, people wanting to pick a steak, for instance, um, in, in store and, and not necessarily being that comfortable picking it online. I think once you've gone through the experience of picking it online and actually it's fine and you're happy with it, you know, that's something that I think you're going to take with you. And, and that's going to sort of uh, change the way you think about certain categories uh, from from then on in. But, yeah, really interesting to think about. Um, lockdown 1.0 versus lockdown 2.0 and how our attitudes um, have, have changed. Personally, I've certainly found this one much harder, even though it's less strict. And I think part of that is possibly to do with the time of year. Um, part of it might be to do with sort of, it feels like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> but um, but it definitely does feel like it's got a slightly different feel to it compared with uh, with what we experienced during the first lockdown. It's a great point you make, and I think not to be too British about it, the weather, and as much as we love talking about the weather, is a massive factor. The fact that it, you know, it's not light till half seven in the morning and it's dark at half four. You, you and you know, they, they talk about a lot, don't they? The impact of vitamin D and the importance of it. Then it does change our mood and how retailers try and keep us moving forward within that. And part of our our journey is really important. Ada, it's been brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really good. Not something I've done before, but something else to tick off my list. We've loved having you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.